tonight we are discussing the one week one year Bible readings for this week, which basically cover the first part of First Corinthians, we'll get to in a minute, the New Testaments and Psalms and Proverbs that are in there, but also the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. And so we'll start as usual with the book of Ezra and uh, see if you've got questions or things you noticed in the book of Ezra. Well, the main reason, I think, is because Jerusalem was a pretty dangerous place at that time. Um, the walls were down. The uh, the security of the city wasn't there. And so to, it wasn't just like, oh, we're just going to head back to our house. Many of them had gotten pretty comfortable where they were. Um, even though they were in captivity, they were in Babylon or um, Persia had come in. They were pretty comfortable where they were. And so why do I want to leave all that I've got? And head back to a place where I've got to rebuild completely. Yeah. And uh, and even if they were scattered throughout what would have been known as Israel proper in the past or Judah, that, you know, he was asking them to leave everything and start a new life with their families and unprotected city without walls or a temple or any of that. It was a pretty big, it was more than just, hey, let's move all move back together. It was a pretty big ask to do that. Yeah, Dottie mentioned that the Persian kings and others letting them go back and build. One of the things that was true in the Old Testament times is that other kings, unless they had a big problem with you, they let you kind of religiously do what you uh, needed to do. Now, where Persian kings kind of went over and above was when they provided materials. They provided passage. I mean, they it wasn't just, okay, you can go do that if that's okay. It was, no, here, take this. Uh, Go do this, or you can have this to help rebuild. So, yeah, all the all the stuff that had been taken. Of course, you have to remember that the Babylonians were the ones that conquered Jerusalem, and when they were conquered themselves by the Persians by Cyrus, um, it was more like, um, well, you weren't our problem. We, you know, this was Nebuchadnezzar stuff, not our stuff, and so we'll, we'll let you take that back. Um, but it was it was impressive, and, and even when we get, which you'll start Nehemiah, we'll start Nehemiah today. We'll talk about Nehemiah next week. But when you're reading Nehemiah, the, the king there does the same thing with Nehemiah. Here, well, I'll give you more than you want there. And so, um, the Israelites would say that was showing God's favor on them for doing what they were supposed to be doing, and that God blessed them, and that He controlled the hearts um, of the kings. They were pagan kings, and what you see now, we'll see this particularly in Daniel that God does um, do some things that the Babylonian king then says, wait, wait a minute, their God is the God. But what you see is it's a fickle commitment because the Babylonian king later, you know, Shadrach, Shaq, and Abednego happen, and then later he's mad again, and he's putting up another statue of himself. And so it's not consistent like the Israelites are supposed to be, but there were those moments of, his fame and his renown and his glory spreading among the nations. We'll get there. Here, let me give you a timeline of kind of where we are with Ezra and Nehemiah. Just for your knowledge, what's kind of interesting is in the original um, Hebrew Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, back to back. It's the Ezra and Nehemiah book. Okay? They're two separate stories, but they're one book. And not, nothing's different when we separate them. They just were two separate stories. But Ezra tells the story of two waves of people coming back to Jerusalem after the exile. The first wave was in 539 to 516. And then Ezra came back in the second wave, which is around five, I mean, around 458. 
Um, and then Nehemiah, which we'll have started reading and we'll read next week, is in 445. So about 10 years after this is the rebuilding of the wall. They get other stuff built, and they're like, hey, we've got to protect ourselves. So that just gives you a time frame um, from where these things are happening. So you have one way that Ezra was not a part of that he wrote about, and then another wave of people coming that he was a part of. Other things that you saw. Well, and, you know, there was that, and, and they knew that there might be some fighting to take it over. Um, if you look in Ezra 3 uh, or in August, on August 6th in there, Ezra 3, verse 3, it says, Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they built the altar. That They get back to Jerusalem, and there are people living there. It just doesn't have to be Israelites. And because it's, it's decent, if it's decent land up on a hill, people are going to settle that. And Jerusalem was built up on a hill, which would be very important for military defense. And so you had that kind of activity. And so they, they, those that were 70 or older were like, it's not worth the fight to go back or, or whatever, you know, if they'd settled. Anything else you noticed? i got a couple things to point out. If you don't, but I want to. Yeah, they, they, the people, of Ms. Dottie mentioned, the people seem to be waiting for a leader, which is true in a lot of situations. Nehemiah, we'll see that. We're waiting for a leader to do something. And Ezra, find, Ezra is a leader, but he's not the leader that leads the first group back, but he's the leader to, hey, let's get ourselves right with the law. So anything bother you in Ezra or anything you have questions about or you read and concerned or made you excited? Any of that? Yes, Jack. Right. Now, what you what what Jack mentioned is uh, on August seventh in the letter that Darius wrote, uh, King Darius, that he says that if you know that um, that if anything happens to that temple, God will do something about it. But you do have this sense, and particularly in like we've said before, Israel and Jerusalem itself were small entities, but they were doing big things around that world, and so. They were kind of known as the team that shouldn't be winning, but just keeps winning. And so they attributed that to their to God. And the Babylonian cap, captors, they would have had stories of Daniel and Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego about this God that was protecting them, this God that was helping them, their God that reached beyond their boundaries. And so he's a powerful God. And so Darius would have had that in mind. But you definitely see that come out in that letter. I don't remember, Jack. It was during what you know. It was a few hundred years before the, or a couple hundred years before the, they finally came and took over. So, all right, turn to Ezra chapter three or August six, depending on what you have. If you've got a regular Bible, Ezra chapter three. If you've got the one-year Bible, August six. Here's something that struck me, just interesting. I talked about this a little bit in in Brazil, actually, in a devotional that I did. Um, I I started last year when I came back from Brazil. It's when I rekindled a passion for reading through the Bible in a year. And so I'm I'm, uh, about finished that because I started about this time. I missed a couple of days in in the October time frame. And so what's interesting is I'm going back and rereading now things that I've highlighted and notes that I've written. And so this was something that stood out to me last year, and then a reading again, it, it did again. At the end of that verse, or end of that chapter, which, by the way, here's an interesting thing. In verse 11, they get ready, they dedicate the foundation, okay? 
And the priests put on the robes, and they blow the trumpets, and the Levites clash their cymbals and praise the Lord. It was a loud, glorious celebration. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. That's the same thing they sang when the Ark of the Covenant was first brought to Jerusalem. So this is, we are recreating this wonderful moment with God. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Verse 12. But many of the older priests, Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple, wept aloud when they saw the temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. As I read that, my first thought was, they must have been overcome with emotion because this foundation is being laid again. But that's not what that verse says. What the verse says is, they were upset. And one of the things that God, when I was reading that, and I wrote this in my in the side, is one of the things that, that God just kind of spoke to me is those that choose to live in the past glory of God miss on the current working of God. Because this was a glorious moment in the life of Israel. Now, was it the same as what they had experienced? No. Was it exactly like they remembered? No. Was they think, well, we saw the temple. Why are we getting excited over a foundation? But it was a glorious moment of beginning to rebuild this community of faith. And yet they were so trapped in what had happened 60, 70 years ago that they couldn't enjoy what God was doing right now. Now, I don't think the re- the reaction to that is just forget everything that's ever happened. But it's to continually be open to what God is doing today or you may miss out on some great working of God. Does that make sense? Here's the statement in verse 13. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard from a far distance. One interpretation or translation of that literally says, you couldn't tell the difference between the singing and shouting and weeping. It was all mixed together. But it's just interesting to me. It's also interesting to me in this way, because sometimes we like to think that we're the first people that have ever had generational differences in worship. Right? And there generational differences in music style and preferences and how worship is. We are not the first generation that has ever experienced worship differences or generational divide. In fact, the note that I wrote out to the side was just generational divide. And that doesn't necessarily mean just because they were older they had a difference. It's because they liked the way it was. Yes, Miss Jones. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not the same. Well, what you have, well, you do have, um, when they get the temple... Uh, verse 16 on August 7th that the temple of God was dedicated with great joy by the people of Israel the priests, the Levites, the rest of the people had returned from exile and and the idea there is that there was joy and celebration there now is it the same description that was there when Solomon first dedicated the temple it's not the same description of the glory of God filling it but this was the temple that would last until the days of Christ the same area, and so it was definitely a temple that would be used for worship over and over. 
Yeah. Adds to it and enhances it. Yeah. Right. Well, and here's, here's what scholars would say about that, is that God commanded for it to be rebuilt, or we wouldn't have Ezra and Nehemiah and all of those stories in there, that God declared that his people needed to worship and celebrate him in that place in a joyful way. And so when you come back and you build it, even though it is different in type, it is still the place of worship for that group of people. And so it is to be celebrated for what it is at that moment, not what it will be in Jesus even, or what it has been in the past. Um, And so that's the point there is that that description of it, except for that little phrase about the priest who were weeping, the way that the original Hebrew is, and I looked at it extensively a year ago and then again this week, gives no indication that it should have been an event that was should have been wept over. It should have been an event that was celebrated, not wept over. You know, uh, in spite of the fact, because this was not have been when God's glory would have filled it anyways. It was just the foundation being laid, not the temple being built. And so there's, that's where scholar, and there's some difference of opinion there in some ways, but the point is that God was doing a new work in a new way with these people and some just didn't enjoy it didn't didn't stop God from working in some ways and didn't stop uh, things being done with Ezra and didn't stop things being done with Nehemiah didn't stop things with the prophets but that the enjoyment that they experienced was lessened because just because they were holding on in some ways so yeah but here's but the the reason that doesn't hold because that's my first thought too Miss Dottie is because in verse 12, it says, they wept aloud. The others, however, were shouting for joy. And the direct contest in the Hebrew is weeping aloud versus shouting for joy. The joyful shouts versus the mournful wailing. Yeah. Now, what I'm saying is, they weren't overcome with emotion because God is doing this again. They were upset because... It wasn't the old temple, right? Right, and they thought, and they, and the point there is, they thought that if the building was inferior, somehow God or the worship of God would be inferior. And so, I, I don't think necessarily that it's. I don't think it's bad they remember the temple or the worship that was in the temple. I think that is to be celebrated. They're to remember that. They're to to hold on to that. What I think is 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 pointed out here, though, is. They did miss out on the joy of what was happening in that moment because they were holding on to this idea from the past. Right, right. And, and God didn't, I mean, you know, um, there, there's no evidence that God ever said, now build me another temple just like Solomon built it. It's just they felt that they needed to reinstitute the worship and they knew what the scripture, what the, their word had said about rebuilding it. And they knew kind of what it was like, and so they were attempting to do that. It's just, it's one of those passages of Scripture that until I read it in this last year, I had never even noticed it. Uh, Partly because, I mean, be honest, how many Bible studies have you ever done on Ezra? How many sermon series have you ever heard on Ezra? I mean, it's it's one of those books when we get to heaven, Ezra's going to stop us and say, do you enjoy my book? And we're going to go, what book are you talking about there? Right? Other stuff? Okay, Miss Hodges, I noticed you back there. You were ready to go. Yeah, 
Ezra is a male, yes. Well, good. Leslie and Wes are reading together through this. And so that's been some interesting questions, right, Leslie, that have come up from Wes reading through it. But, you know, uh, that's one of the things I plan to do with Eli when he gets to where he can read pretty well is is reading through this because, you know, what better way to kind of get them involved in the Word than reading and for especially for boys, there's some really cool stuff in that Old Testament, right? Some stuff that make y'all go, Ugh, make those boys go, that is cool. What do you think about them naming names? You know what I'm talking about? They realized that they did some stuff they weren't supposed to do, specifically that some priests had married. They didn't let them off the hook without telling who they were, did they? Bring me a list, and either your wives go or you do. It's interesting when you read that, because we about that same time we were reading in 1 Corinthians, well, we'll get to in a minute, I'm sure, about when Paul says, I've already judged this man, put him out, turn him over to Satan, so that he'll be restored. So you had church discipline in the Old Testament and church discipline in the New Testament happening at the same time. I also thought it was interesting the difference in reaction between um, between uh, sin in the two readings. In fact, let's see if I can find there. There was one day in particular I wrote. I got lots of notes here. Right, it's on August 9th. If you've got the one in your Bible, if not, you can just kind of listen. But it's Ezra 9, 8 and 9, and 1 Corinthians 5. And I just wrote this in between the margin, which is, notice the difference in response to sin between Ezra and Corinth. In Ezra, what happens? They find out their sin in their midst, and what do they do? They get rid of it, right? Let's get rid of it. Let's name it. Let's figure out what it is. Let's read the law again and again. They get up and they read the law and people say um, we're being punished because of our wickedness. We ain't even been following it. It's not like if, if somebody got up today I just imagine this. What if somebody we, we'd been a church for, for 20 years and the Bible had been lost from the face of the earth. And we'd just been living however talking to each other. Well I think this is what's supposed to happen. And then somebody unearthed somewhere in an archive, the Bible, and we brought up and it said, don't do this and do that. We'd be like, whoa. My thought is today the reaction would be, well, we didn't know we were supposed to do that. I'm, you know, We must not be accountable for it because we didn't know. The Israelites, basically that's what happens. They get back, they start worshiping, and all of a sudden they find this book and they're like, man, we have messed up. It's time to repent. It's time to get right with God. Now, compare that with 1 Corinthians 5, where it says that they have um, immorality just in the midst of them. And it says, I am told, this is in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Now, you can try to interpret that every way you can, but the New Testament says that he is living in sin with his stepmother. Verse 2. But you are what? Proud of yourselves. You should be mourning and sorrow and shame. And I just couldn't help, you know, there have been times when these kind of things just mesh together. I couldn't help but think in Ezra, that's exactly what they did. And in Corinthians, it was like, well, that's just part of what's going on. We'll, we'll pray for him. Think about him. 
We'll talk about him outside the church, but we won't talk to him or, you know. Just interesting. It's one of those contrast moments that maybe nobody else thinks is interesting, but I do, and I'm the one that gets to talk the most. So. All right, let's go to Corinthians. Anything else in Ezra before we go to Corinthians? They did. Yeah, that's what I... They, it wasn't just, oh, we're sorry. They got... They had to get rid of their their wives and their children. They had to send them away. That's tough. That's tough. And we read that in the Bible, and we're like, yeah, that's exactly what they should have done. But can you imagine if I walked in here Sunday and I said, if you're here and you're married to an unbeliever, you got to send them back, and your children go with them. I might have a job Sunday afternoon. I wouldn't have a job Monday morning. But that's what Ezra says, right? He says, they're, they're, huh? What's that? I know, I might not. But that's what he said. That's what Ezra says, isn't it? I mean, this is the rule. If you've married, particularly if you're a priest, I'm going to name you, and then you've got to get rid of it. Because here's the thing, by naming them, he basically set in motion that their families, until they repented, would be marked. 1 Corinthians. We're going to leave that tough stuff behind and go to 1 Corinthians. It's a bunch of easy stuff, right? What questions do you have in 1 Corinthians? We started in chapter 1, and today we got all the way through uh, in the middle part of chapter 7. Let me give you a general introduction to the book of Corinthians. Corinth was a messed up church, okay? Also known as a typical church body in history. They had issues on every side. Paul had helped start them. Paul was kind of their spiritual dad. They would ask him questions. He will say things like, now concerning the letter you wrote, there are actually, we we think there are four letters that were written between Paul and the Corinthians. Um, First Corinthians is probably Second Corinthians because there was a letter probably before this. And then you have Second Corinthians. And then there seems to be a letter between Second Corinthians and or First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. So Second Corinthians would probably be Fourth Corinthians, and there would be a Third Corinthians somewhere. But all we've got are two, so we just name them First and Second. All right, got that? Okay. And so when he says, after we get to chapter seven, he says, "Now concerning the questions." I think it's chapter seven. Is that where it starts? Chapter seven. Now concerning the questions. The rest of this book will be now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. Those are questions they specifically ask him. The first six chapters are just Paul saying, here's where you're messing up. Okay? A couple of things about the Corinthian church, what had happened there. Corinth was in a place that was a high-traffic place. They, uh, They would have had, they were at the site of major international events. Um, The Isthmian Games would have been there. Uh, at times, uh, so those are games that uh, Isthmian games were games that were kind of like the Olympics in some ways. They would have been there. Corinth would have been a center. It was uh, it was a, a center of international trade. There would have been tons of religious stuff there. They had particular gods and goddesses. So it was a very uh, multicultural place. It was also generally considered a very sinful place. Uh, in some descriptions, you can see where. People would describe Corinth in same similar terms. They would describe somewhere like Las Vegas uh, uh, today. And so a church starting there would have natural issues. Um, and so 
that's why the sexual immorality was rampant there. Um, you know, they had issues with food and sacrifice to idols, and we'll get into all that a little bit. But in the church in Corinth, there were a group of people that began to teach that they had already arrived, that they were the spiritual people, that because of gifts that they possessed, they were more spiritual than everybody else. And so you have things where Paul will mock that and say things like, I wish we are already glorified. I wish we were already in heaven. But God has chosen the apostles to be shamed in front of the world. Because he had people there saying, see, we're elevated ourselves, and if you're truly following God, nothing bad will ever happen to you. If you're truly following God, you'll be able to do this. And Paul kind of begins to break down their defenses. Okay, And so throughout the book, he will say, I wanted to talk to you like you were spiritual, but I had to talk to you like you were babes. I had to give you milk instead of meat. So you have those kind of discussions where Paul basically says, you think you've got it all worked out. Let me just show you the issues that are there. All right? Questions you have from 1 Corinthians. Thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Okay, tell me, do you have the chapter and verse? Who is that? Yeah. Are you using commentaries reading this stuff now? Yeah, well, not not than Jay Vernon. Uh, here's the thing. From the beginning of the book, Genesis through Revelation, what we see is in the end, we are to rule and to reign with Jesus. Okay? And so, there is this understanding that when we are in our glorified state, that we will be under rulers to God Almighty. Like I think we talked about this last week a little bit, that Genesis that Genesis talks about that when he created the earth, the first command he gave to Adam was to be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, control it, take it over. Okay? And so what Paul is mentioning here is that when we get into our glorified state, that we will be part judging there doesn't necessarily... When we say judge, we think of black robe sitting on a post saying this is right, this is wrong. Judging there means determining the course and direction of the future world. And so we will be a part of ruling and reigning. We'll have responsibility. We'll be in charge of some things. Um, we will be uh, co um, leaders, if you will, under the authority of Christ and God Almighty and the Holy Spirit, of ruling and reigning over a new earth and a new heavens. Okay? So what he's saying there is, if we can't do a good job of doing that here amongst ourselves, how in the world do we expect to be able to do that in the future? That's my interpretation. Yeah, well, Scripture seems to suggest that when we get into our glorified state that we will hold a higher position of authority than the angels. Well, that, I think I don't think the judge means... That's what I'm saying. It's not they're right or wrong. I think that means uh, the word judge there... And, I, and what I'll do is I'll go back and look over that a little bit more closely this this week and, and give, give you some feedback next week as well. The, the word there, if I remember correctly, is a word that has a much broader meaning than determining whether they're right or wrong, guilty or not guilty. It means 
um, being in leadership over. It means uh, ruling over or, or uh, having responsibility over. Um, it might, in, in the sense that I'm talking about, it would be that I might be uh, judge over my children right now. That, that, that I have responsibility for them. And I, I make, in a chain of command, I am higher than they are at this time. Now, they question that sometimes, uh, but that, that I'm over that. Okay? Um, I, we're, I mentioned on Sunday morning reading a book called The Mission of God. And one of the things that that book talked about quite a bit was that one of the ways you know the New Testament claims that Jesus is the Son of God and equal with God is it constantly talks about him judging the nations or judging with God or seated at the right hand of the Father, those kind of things. And so it, it means not that that word that word throws can throw us off. And I don't know that I can give you a full explanation, but it doesn't mean determining whether or not they're going to get into heaven, the angels. It doesn't mean that. Um, so, yeah. And so, and and there's a sense that it's even more than the millennial reign. It's it's the eternal reign that when when God has subdued the earth and recreated a new heaven and a new earth, that we will be a part of that. That you know. The city of God will be under control of believers and will have responsibilities. And that it will be different. There won't be hierarchies and presidents necessarily. Uh, well, I say that. There may be there will be greater responsibilities and lesser responsibilities, but none of us will be upset at our boss. None of us are going to jump out of an airplane because we're mad with our job, right? You all see that story this week. The guy pulled the chute and jumped out of the airplane while it was on the ground. Yeah, we'll be going to heaven instead of postal. That's right, Joe. Other questions in 1 Corinthians? Yeah, it does. I preached on that a couple of weeks ago, and it does. It connects that uh, because when they come back and they have it, he says, I'll, you, you've been faithful a little. I'll make you faithful over more. And what Paul is basically saying is if you can't handle what you're doing now, how do you think you're going to get great greater responsibility later? And the whole point of that is uh, Gary didn't show up tonight because he knew we'd be talking about lawyers. Right. Uh, the whole point of that is that there ought to, if you've got a dispute among a fellow believer, this were land disputes, financial disputes, civil disagreements. Why in the world would you take them to a secular judge to judge when you ought to just settle it among yourselves? What apparently was happening in Corinth, they did have this judicial system and. They would bring their cases before, and apparently the Christians were getting up there in this fledgling new Christian environment, and they were airing all their differences with each other in front of everybody. And as a result, everybody kept saying, well, why in the world do we want to be a part of that? All they do is argue and fight and sue each other, which is my thing about, and we've had a couple instances in, in Nashville in, in the past year. If there are disagreements in the church, the absolute worst thing you can do is take it public. And I don't mean not have a public business meeting. I'm talking about calling in the Tennessean and putting up a blog and getting on WSMV and saying, let me tell you what's happening at our church. That serves no purpose. 
for the glory of the kingdom of God. Just why would you air your differences? I can see Paul now saying, why would you air your differences in a public forum where everybody will look and say, what in the world are they doing? I mean, just... Can you, have you ever watch something in the, on, and they talk about a church fight and you go, man, I hope I get to be a part of that church someday. And that'd be great. Right? I mean, that's not your first thought. So that, that doesn't mean that there aren't differences. Paul doesn't say there shouldn't be differences. You just ought to handle them among yourselves. Right. And what he's saying is we're in the business of attempting to, we're not going to be dishonest about it and say, ooh, everything is just wonderful and great. But why would you have an outside authority decide what is an internal matter? Other things in 1 Corinthians. Right. And what you're dealing with, too, in Corinth, you have to remember, is uh, it's a different issue in this way. Most of the priests were priests before they married. And then they married foreign wives. Most of the Corinthians were unbelievers when they married. And the spouse has come to the Lord, and the other spouse has not. And so it's not uh, necessarily that they were a believer, because Paul will also say don't be unequally yoked, it, that they were a believer and they went out and found an unbelieving wife and then they, they married or an unbelieving husband, but that they were two unbelievers. One became a believer in Jesus. You shouldn't just, once you become a believer, leave for greener pastures. The Corinthians were teaching that if you were a believer in Jesus, you left everything in your previous life behind. You went and joined this little group and sectioned yourself off and left everybody. And so you had believers. Now, this comes from history and tradition and putting it together with Paul's writings. There were some that they would become a Christian and they would leave their families. And that doesn't show much witness at all either. Um I read a book uh, four or five years ago now called Surviving a a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage. It's written by a guy named Lee Strobel, who if you've ever read The Case for Christ or The Case for Faith or The Case for Creation or I don't know what other cases he's got out now, but he's got cases. he's He's an investigative journalist with the Chicago Tribune originally. His wife became a believer, and it caused difficulty in their marriage, but she wouldn't leave him. And he eventually came to know Christ because of the example of his wife. That's what Paul has in mind here. That if you've become a believer in the midst of your marriage, don't just leave it. But he also says the the best thing to be is single, like him. But he says before that, that's not really realistic, right? So everybody go get you a wife and everybody go find you a husband. But, you know, other questions. First Corinthians. Are we done there? See, we just got through talking about him, and here he comes. Waited till that lawyer talk was done, and we came, let him come in. Other questions in First Corinthians. All right, anything in Psalms and Proverbs? Because there are only 31 chapters, and we're already 21 in. We'll get through it. Don't worry, Miss Dottie. I've, I've, I've looked at it. In the last day, December 31st, we read... Proverbs 31, 31, about the virtuous woman. The Lord directs our steps, so why try to understand everything along the way? Part of faith is trust in the Lord, even when we don't fully understand. You got Proverbs 20, 
28 through 30. Um, we keep finding verses we're going to put on my kids' walls, right? Not this one. 29 is the glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. Doesn't say a thing in there about 34-year-olds. I don't know where I fit in the midst of that. The next one is that phrase, physical punishment cleanses away evil and discipline purifies the heart. We talked last week about um, Proverbs, about this concept in Proverbs 21. We talked, saw it this week in, in Cyrus and Darius and all those kings. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. All right, anything else? Yeah, the heart... Um, Proverbs steadily beats that drum against arrogance or pride. And the heart was considered not just like today we think of the ooey feeling of love or emotion. It was considered the center of the will, uh, emotion, that it was the center of life. And so it just says a person that is prideful or arrogant is something that the Lord detests. And part of that is because arrogance means that you're confident in yourself and the only confidence we have comes from our relationship with the Lord. All right.